Hi, everyone. Welcome to the podcast, Healer, Heal Yourself. Reduce burnout, discover your creativity while you heal others. I'm your host, Dr. Isla Bates. I am a psychiatrist and an artist based in New York City. This is a podcast where we talk about the intersection of art, creativity, and medicine. On today's episode, we have Dr. Lynette Charity, who's a retired anesthesiologist who is now a stand-up comedian. And I think for most of this episode, you're going to laugh, but you're also probably going to want to cry at times too. She gives a very um, heartfelt um, discussion about her bout of depression and suicide but she also knows how to use humor and to get us to laugh even in the darkest moments so i hope you enjoy this episode here we go thanks for listening okay hello everybody today i have lynette charity who's uh, dr lynette charity who's going to talk to us about her career and <laughs> she started in medicine and now she's venturing into a comedic life <laughs> a life of comedy stand-up comedy that is so welcome dr charity thank you so much for having me dr bates uh for the audience out there as she said i'm lynette charity uh, i am officially September 2019, retired from the field of anesthesiology. And uh, I had a sort of um, out of body experience a few years ago. We talk about burnout. I'm not sure if what I experienced at the ripe old age of 60, which was nine years ago, but I questioned whether I wanted to stay in medicine. And I did a lot of research and I had a, an experience late at night struggling with what I wanted to do. And I woke up and I decided I wanted to be a stand-up comic. So uh, I, my background is, as I said, I, I was an anesthesiologist. I am an anesthesiologist. I have to stop saying that. I'm retired. But if the apocalypse came right now and you gave me an <laughs> oxygen tank and some propofol, I could do it. I could really do it. That's I could right. really do it. So, yes. so I, I, I am an anesthesiologist. My, uh, I've been a pup, I am a professional speaker and I am a stand-up comic. And, you know, I, we can talk more about that. My background from anesthesia is that I went to Tufts Medical School. I did a residency at Beth Israel Hospital in Boston. And uh, then I joined the military and I made the rank of uh, Lieutenant Colonel as the uh, Assistant Chief of Anesthesia and Operative Services at Madigan Army Medical Center. And I went from there to uh, a private practice uh, and in Washington State, did that mm -hmm. for a while, then transitioned from there into doing uh, basically locums work and uh, which is I try I tell people I went to exotic places like Yuma, Arizona in the summertime and Minot, North Dakota in the wintertime. 
very, very interesting experiences. And even practiced in Dubai, United Arab Emirates. Um, at the time, women were seen as not necessarily equal, but as a physician, I managed until I didn't manage. And then I left that and went on to be chief of an anesthesia department in Richland, Washington, and uh, got fired from a job, which I thought was new and different. And that's when I started questioning because medicine evolved. Medicine had evolved to this point where we were all employees and you could be fired if you didn't toe the line. Yeah. And by then I had been practicing for 35 years. It was like, you know, I, I just didn't handle it very well. Yeah, but you, I, was this around the time that um, nurse practitioners were also doing the job of anesthesiologists? Well, it wasn't, nurse anesthetists have been around for a long time. Oh, okay. uh, uh, you can in some places and in this state where I am right now, by the way, I'm in Gilbert, Arizona, uh, mm -hmm. Nurses can practice, nurse anesthetists can practice under their own license, uh, not with the supervision of a physician. Uh, that was starting to evolve back, uh, you know, nine years ago where that was happening. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, I've had different feelings about it, but when I started doing, doing locums work, I found it difficult because EMRs that come out by that time and a lot of rules that come and I am an old dog, you know, I tell people I'm a dinosaur. I can give an anesthetic, but the technological part of it, all the technical stuff, I found that I struggled. It took me a long time to, to uh, put uh, notes inside of an EMR. It took me a long time to get drugs out. So I said, all right, I give up. I will now staff, I will staff nurse anesthetists. So you just give me two or three rooms. I had to be there for induction and emergence. And, uh, and I vetted everyone that I worked with. Mm -hmm. And I said, you know, this is what I, I can do this. And I, I went off and I learned how to do ultrasound guided blocks, which I thought, you know, was beyond me, but I loved it. Okay. And once I learned that anywhere I went, they always said, all right, Dr. Charity is going to put all the blocks in and then you take the patients and you take them into the operating room. And yeah. it was like, hey, this is pretty cool. So. Yeah. Well, back in the old days, we used to write, handwrite all of our notes, right? That's right. And, uh, that's how it was when I started too. And, and all of a sudden now, everything is on the EMR and it's completely different world. Um. I kind of miss that. I miss the note writing and I, you know. Yeah, I miss it too. I know that part of it was um, some physicians handwriting is not the best, but I got, I got an A in penmanship. So my notes were beautiful. And um, I, I was amazed at how many mistakes I made encoding it into the electronic medical record. It would have never happened that way if right. I had just been allowed to just handwrite it. Clicking boxes was not something yeah. that an anesthesiologist should do. And also there's a lot of cutting and pasting that happens too with a lot of these notes. And I actually think, and I know this is an aside, but I am a creative and an artist and, and, and draw, but I do think that hand uh, connection, that writing out your note 
there it's it connects you to the patient it connects you to the moment and the experience in a way that clicking a few buttons or cutting and pasting just doesn't have the same effect and the biggest problem too is and i've done i've said this in some of my my presentations is that how do you connect with a patient if number one you only have eight minutes if you're if you're lucky but you're sitting down at a computer your back is to the patient you're asking questions and you're encoding and you're not engaging right your patient then no eye contact right yeah. eye contact is something that we value and really helps us to connect yeah. And, and now touchy feely, I, you know, yeah. I'm not, I'm not really, really touchy feely. I am an anesthesiologist. So I like most of my patients to sleep, but, <laughs> in, but chatting with them in the beginning, you right. know, if they have concerns, I put my hand on them and say, listen, I'm good at what I do. I got your back. I'll yeah. take care of you. And yeah. you can't do that. If you're just saying, you know, I got your back, <laughs> you know, it, and, and that's a complaint that I've heard from a lot of my friends and, and, and you know, patients saying mm -hmm. that doctors don't seem to have that connection with us anymore. Yeah, no, it's absolutely, it's 100% true. It's been my personal experience uh, with many of the doctors that I've seen and encountered there, that there is a lack of, of connection because they're not looking at you or listening to you anymore. Right, I think. Well, we have press gainy scores that we have to deal with and Yelp reviews and, and yeah. this whole custom, treating medicine as a business with customer service reviews. You know, I have a very good friend who uh, works in the ER and she was saying that sometimes these people, especially the repeat offenders, we'll call them, uh, drug-seeking people come into the ER. I lost my meds. I did this. You know, you got to give me more. And if you don't listen to them saying that, they will. They tell you right off the bat, I'm going to give you a bad review. And oh. if you are in a hospital setting and you get a bad review, you know, you got to go before the principal's office. You know, why is that? Your pro the product productivity model is such that those dings against you could mean that you don't get that bonus. So you don't get that added time or whatever, you don't get it. Mm -hmm. And it has nothing to do with who you are and how you treat patients. It's mm -hmm. just this one-on-one -on -one quick interaction with someone that now hates your guts. Right, and and so the, the most ethical and appropriate thing to do could get you a bad review. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. So that's where comedy comes in because we need we need <laughs> we need a sense of relief from a lot of the stress and strain of being a doctor, I tell you. Yeah, I I one of my presentations is, you know, medicine is your calling, but it's not supposed to kill you. You know, find your funny because I share in my I share my story of I went into a very severe depression in medical school, mm -hmm. and um, fortunately for me, 
I had uh, some support at the time. You know, I went to medical school 1974 to 1978. So it was a while ago and mental health was not something that was, you know, I was hospitalized. I went down to 80 pounds. Mm. Um, I wasn't eating. I was just really stressed out. And all after they did a, a workup because I had the typical symptoms of, of depression where you know, I'm not eating, I'm not drinking, I'm not sleeping, I'm losing weight. And they decided to do a GI workup on me. After that came back fine, it was, okay, well, just go on back, you know, go eat and go on back to school. That was, that was all that was there. Wow. And what then my father died. Oh my and, gosh. Um, on top of that, and I had to go back home for that. So I lost a lot of time. And then I contemplated not going back to school because I had lost a lot of time. But um, what I have year, to go back. What uh, year were you in school when that I happened? Was in, I was, it was 1975. No, I mean, like, were you a second oh, year? No, I was the first year. First year. First year. See, what happened wow. is, you know, it was, it was during the time of affirmative action. And, uh -huh. But I was, um, you know, I was a National Merit Scholar ship uh you know semi-finalist in high school i went off i got a full ride to college i was doing very well i um i had gotten accepted in my junior year to tufts medical school uh mm -hmm. thanks to dr vivian penn uh, mm -hmm. i have to give her a shout out you know mm -hmm. and uh, when i got there the first day of school i'm in the or orientation and when things were settling down one of my white male classmates came up to me, kind of cornered me mm -hmm. off to the side and just said, you know, you're only here because affirmative action. They've got a twofer for you. You know, you're mm -hmm. black and you're female. Mm -hmm. And I didn't know how to process that at mm -hmm. the time. My, my brain said I was qualified to of be course. in you the were. school. Except and he no. was angry because a friend of his, I guess, had didn't get in, and 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 I guess he felt that I was the reason why. But it 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 really struck me uh, in a negative way, and I started the the whole thing of, am I qualified? You know, imposter syndrome. Maybe I don't belong here. They're going to come in the classroom one day and say we made a mistake and you need to leave. So I have all these things going on in my head and I started just shying away from everyone. Study, study, study. I did well on all my exams and everything, but I still felt that I was not worthy. Mm -hmm. And um, it ended up, and no one seemed to notice that I was looking a little gaunt, mm -hmm. including myself, but I collapsed during one of my classes. And, um, and that's when, and fortunately the hospital was right across the street. So they threw me on a gurney and they whisked me over there and I spent a week in the hospital. And, um, but I got myself back together again, thanks to my, my classmates. We had a very, uh, there were 15 of us, 15 or 18 um, uh, minority students. And I'll just say, you know, black students because there were other, other minorities, Hispanic, Asian, but we had this little group that helped and they helped me to do my makeup tests. I had to do some oral uh, tests and I passed and I got to go on with my class, mm -hmm. which uh, was an amazing thing. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, I ended up graduating 
uh, from medical school and uh, doing pretty well until that whole idea of I'm now a doctor, a mother, a lover, a wife, you know, all of those things ended up coming together yet again, uh, where this time around though, I went into, because I, I should preface this by, you didn't want a, anyone to know that you had an issue back then. That's yes. not something because credentialing, you know, right. thing with credentialing. And I had seen, I had been seeing a psychiatrist off and on, but I refused to go on medication because I would have to check a box or say that I was on it. So I and wouldn't it could affect your license just for it people would, exactly. who, who aren't aware of this. Many times when a physician reports that they've had depression or seen a psychiatrist, that could be a strike against them with their license. And sometimes you have to be closely monitored, um, which can really impact your life as well. So a lot of physicians avoid this process. Yeah, and that's what I did until I spiraled down to the point that I found myself on a bridge ready to mm. jump. Oh my God. And, um, you know, I was at the time about 45 mm. um, and uh, I had two children. There was just a lot of things going on in my life and I didn't feel that there was anyone I could talk to about it mm. because we don't as we were talking earlier about that perfectionist, you know, doctors are, are supposedly able to work 24 hours a day, seven days a week, take care of their family, take care of, you know, they're not allowed to say, I'm tired, or I feel sad, or, you know, can I have a day off because I've got these issues. My kids were not raised by wolves, but they were raised by nannies because I had, even as a woman in a, in a practice and a partner in this practice, still had to hold up my end. And even okay. I went into preterm labor with both my children and my partners got angry with me because, yeah. you know, I was messing things up kind of thing. Yeah. 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 So um, fortunately for me, um, when I was standing on that bridge, about to, and I was literally, my TED talk, I, I talk about it. I was on this bridge and it is truly amazing. And you as a psychiatrist, Dr. Bates, you probably understand sometimes those suicidal ideations sound like the right thing to do. Mm -hmm. They mm -hmm. just sound like it just, you know, my voices were saying, I'm not a good mother. I'm not a good wife. I'm not even a good doctor and that I should just kill myself. And I thought, oh, yeah, that's, that sounds right. Now I'm a physician and mm -hmm. these voices are telling me to do this. And I just wanted the pain to go away. Whatever I was feeling that was hurting me, I mm -hmm. wanted it to go away. And I knew that if I jumped, you know, and for, and I, I was even contemplating where I needed to jump off of this bridge so that there was no possibility that I would survive, you know, mm -hmm. And so uh, I was about to jump and a voice came into my head and all it said was, call your mama. I'm from the South, call your mama. And mm -hmm. I thought to myself, if I don't talk to my mom before I kill myself, she's gonna kill me. <laughs> <laughs> you know how mamas are. <laughs> She'll be really mad at you. <laughs> That's right. 
<laughs> and my mom has gone on presentations with me and I tell that story and people say, is that really, she, he said, she said, yeah, I would have taken her limp body and just <laughs> like this. You shouldn't have done this without asking me first. <laughs> so, so yeah, I, yeah, I, I called her and um, I went home and I got into intensive uh, treatment. Oh, wow. Uh, now, didn't tell anybody, didn't tell mm -hmm. any credentialing board, didn't tell, you know, just did it. Mm -hmm. But as soon as I, uh, I took some time off and as soon as I had to go back, I stopped the medication like cold turkey because yeah. I didn't, you know, it's one thing to lie, you know, and, but I always afraid, you know, what if I got caught? What yeah. if I got caught? That was the thing is that, you know, so caught treating yourself, right? Caught. What? taking care of yourself what if you got caught taking care of yourself i know what yeah. would happen what would yeah 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 well i might lose my license exactly because i You're... lied on this right you know, and i have i've said it over and over again that should not even be on a credentialing application 100 percent. yeah 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 and and it's so frustrating now because Athletes are coming out, you know, celebrities are coming, all these people are coming out and saying, I suffer with this, I suffer with that, you know, and everybody's going, oh, it, that's so nice that they are, you know, putting themselves out there. Why can't we do that? Why yeah. can't we do that? You know, yeah. we're human beings like everybody else. But what yeah. happens? We end up just like at the beginning of COVID you know, a number of female physicians died by suicide. Yeah. Know? And yeah. so it's, it's a frustrating aspect of who we are as physicians. Right. The suicide rate for physicians is a, a minimum twice as much as it is for the general public. Right. And, and higher amongst women. And much higher. It's yeah. four times for women. And medical um, students and yeah. Yeah. It's, it's just it's a, a problem. Mm -hmm. What? There, it's a big problem, right? Yes. It's it's the it, it's this attitude that we are somehow superhuman, and and you know it's really kind of upsetting to be called a hero during the pandemic because we you know we end up working beyond what is humanly possible sometimes, and we end up being hurt by it, and so. Yeah, this is why we need to heal ourselves first before we try to heal others. Yeah. And now we're in a situation, a lot of uh, physicians have taken early retirement. Uh, yeah, I, I retired in 2019 and when COVID started, I was inundated with um, uh, requests. And the only thing I said was, do you know how old I, I am? <laughs> no, uh, no, no, I, I can't fall on my sword for this because I have, I have a grandson. I have a lot of other things I want to do in my life and uh, I, I can't do it. And I felt guilty. Even my, my husband's a physician too. We both sat down and said, well, you know, it, we, we could do it. And I go, we have to say no. We, our, our children told us to say no. You know? Yeah, and yeah. at the time, my grandson, if he could have said anything, you know, he'd probably go, Nana, no, no, Nana, no. <laughs> yeah, 
I think some of us who have been practicing for 25, for me, you 30, you, you practice for over 42. Oh, 42 years, sorry. <laughs> um, you know, a, a lot of us, we have sacrificed a lot. And I think that some of the doctors who are coming up now, I think millennials have taught us a lot about life and what our priorities should be. And the younger doctors were saying, look, I'm not taking this. I'm going to have some passive income and I'm going to retire in 10 years. And they're not killing themselves for 40 years or 30 years or 20 years. Yeah. They're saying enough. And I think that we are moving into an era where hopefully, hopefully things will change, but they will get worse before they get better. Yeah. So we haven't laughed enough. <laughs> <laughs> we're getting we're getting too serious here i know i know but i can't help it i mean yeah. you know doesn't comedy come from pain yeah yeah tragedy plus time yeah mm -hmm. it's uh uh there and that was it you know when i turned 60 and i decided that i wanted to do this and and it came out of the blue because you know, I'm an anesthesiologist. What can I say? You know, but uh, it it came out of out of the fact that I I was just sick and tired of being sick and tired. So uh, first of all, after I got fired from this one position, I walked across the street. I you know dried my tears off and everything. Walked across the street. Walked into the surgery center and said, "Hey everybody, I've got some free time. Anybody need an anesthesiologist?" And word had traveled fast that I had no long, I had been, you know, booted out of that hospital. And they said, come Dr. Charity, we need you. And uh, yeah, and so I did that. And then I, uh, I, as I was telling you earlier, I said, you know, maybe there's something else in medicine I can do before I just go off to do that. And I went to a program called, um, uh, you know, non-clinical careers for the retiring physician, which they changed to non-clinical careers for the physician. And I met a woman named Heather Fork. And uh, I told her, I said, I want to be a stand-up comic, lounge singer, voiceover actor. And she sat back and she said, well, that's interesting. We haven't had anyone request that here. <laughs> and she suggested that if I truly wanted to do something like that, first see if I am capable of engaging an audience because I put people to sleep, you know, I tell people <laughs> I ask, ask for a living, you know? So I, I, I did that. I did what she said. I went off and did Toastmasters and oh my goodness, it was like, I was woke, you know, all this time I had been going through, you know, it, by then it had been over 30 years and, and I had just been doing my job, all that kind of stuff and, and going home and, and then, when I started speaking to people that were awake <laughs> and engaging them and, and also telling my story, my story of, uh, you know, growing up in the, in the 1950s in the segregated South and um, being mm -hmm. one of the first blacks to integrate a white high school. So telling my story, all of a sudden I found topics and things to share with people and then how to infuse humor in it because 
you know, if you tell a story and it's, you know, and then this happened and, and people are just going, oh my goodness, this is so awful. And you never ever give them a chance to just sort of breathe through it all, then uh, it doesn't work. People go, oh yeah, that, that was a really sad story. And even when I tell my story about thinking about uh, dying by suicide, you know, that whole thing when I say, you know, you know, then my mom called, you know, in my head kind of thing, and <laughs> she's gonna kill me. And it, it's to bring people up. So I, I hired a comedy coach and, uh, and I started writing jokes about being an anesthesiologist. Did you realize that we are the Rodney Dangerfields of medicine? You know, and for you young people out there, Rodney Dangerfield was a, a comic back in the day and his tagline was, we get, he gets no respect. So that's my tagline when I'm telling my story, anesthesiologists don't get, don't get no respect. So I went off to my first comedy gig and I wore my scrub. I was scared to death. I mean, number one you know, thing that frightens people usually is death. Uh, number two is public speaking. <laughs> you know, and that is reversing itself. But here I am, I've got all these titles, I've got all this stuff and I'm in a bar with a lot of drunk people, you know, mm -hmm. standing there. And, uh, but when I got up on that stage and looked out at the audience and it was like, hey, 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 how's everybody doing? You know, <laughs> yeah, I'm Dr. Charity. I'm an anesthesiologist. That's right, I'm a doctor. And then I went into my bit and people came up to me and said, you're funny. And I go, well, thank you. And then a couple of days later, I go back to work and everything. And I patient comes into the room. I go, hi, I'm Dr. Charity. And the guy sits bolt upright. He goes, I know who you are. And I go, you do? You know, did I do something <laughs> to your family? What did I do? He goes, weren't you at the comedy club the other night? You're a real doctor? You know, and that was it. He says, oh, you're right. funny. And I go, well, thank you so much. And I incorporated what I learned in comedy because I tell physicians that all people who badmouth you treat them as hecklers. That's all they are as hecklers. And I did a workshop a few years ago in Indiana and I had docs that were like this while I was talking to them about improvisate using improv in arm crossed. Yeah. Yeah, that, you know, yeah. yeah, I didn't come here for this. I want statistics. I want this and I want that. Yeah, and I got them up and had them do some role playing. And all of a sudden, when they could get it out, what they were feeling that was a, not inside of their bodies. And, and we played a game called Yes And, which is a basic improv technique. Yeah, I just uh, did that. This, did you just do this? Yeah, I did Good. last weekend. Uh-huh. Yeah. They, and then I allowed them to be the, the bad administrator, to be the bad patient, to be the bad colleague. Sometimes your colleagues can be your worst nightmare too. Mm -hmm. We as anesthesiologists would get all of this grief from the surgeons. You know, and, I, and I got to the point where I say, okay, so um, you're mad at me because you're running late. But that hernia that you did this morning that was supposed to be 30 minutes took you three hours. Are you aware of that? 
you know, just throwing it back at them, not in a bad way, but letting them be aware that I can only do what, you know, I can't do the surgery. You know, I'm not going to tell you what kind of cat gut to use. And you just have to understand that. Mm -hmm. So I started using that even in my practice. And I found that I didn't let these people get under my skin. And the whole idea is you don't get mad, you get funny. Mm -hmm. You just get yeah. funny. And there are things that you can think of to say. You don't have to say them out loud, but say them in your head and go in a corner and just have a good belly laugh because you lose calories when you belly laugh and you release endorphins. You know, it's fun. And yeah. making, you know, I, I do a form of self deprecating humor uh, because. I am an anesthesiologist, you know, and, and there are just so many stories that I have turned into humorous jokes. Yeah. And I'm still doing it. <laughs> so That's great. I, I, I should say that I did a, I was just in Hawaii and um, I got a, I got a gig over Zoom. Awesome. To, at a family practice group in Maine. And uh, it was so, I did a 10 minute set and they just kind of loved it. They, they had a chance to just laugh. And, yeah. and I got great feedback from it saying that they needed that. And that's, awesome. and, and that's it. That's yeah. It. So uh, I'm, I'm imagining that now that you've connected with this desire, desire of yours that you've had for so long that you must feel the most joy you've ever felt. Well, along with the fact that uh, um, I don't have any school debt or, you know, there are a lot yeah. of the, that kids, or I should call, I call them kids because I feel that way sometimes, yeah. young physicians. I, what has given me the greatest joy right now actually is uh, my grandson. Yeah. Uh, because um, my husband, and I didn't think we were going to have any grandchildren. And so, um, when three years ago, my daughter calls me up and says, Ma, guess what? And I go, you're pregnant. And she goes, why would you think that? I said, <laughs> calls her mother up and says, guess what? And she was. And that actually was the thing that made our, my husband and I say, because we were living in Washington State. Um, we said, all right, we're retiring. We're going down. And we have been in this young man's life since birth. In fact, we were in the room when she gave birth and my daughter kept saying to her dad, dad, stop looking down there. Stop looking down there. Said, well, I'm a doctor. No, you're my dad. You know? <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, and, and it, that's been it. It's, yeah. you know, it does. Comedy gives me joy. And, um, and this, you know, this young man has given me a new perspective. Uh, prospect, uh, uh, what, what is the word? Perspective. Thank you. Perspective. You know, yeah. I, sometimes I think I need to go and start taking some Aricep. Uh, <laughs> I know we all do starting. Uh... Well, I am, I am in a good place in my life yeah. right now. I, I really am. Uh -huh. And I truly hope that uh, other physicians get to that point where they can weigh what's important in their lives. And yeah. yes, medicine was our calling. You know, we love what we do, but I don't see, as you've been saying, I don't see someone spending 40 years in, in this business anymore. 
And yeah. yeah, I just don't because there's, oh my goodness, when I, when I was at that meeting um, about non-clinical careers, it was like, oh, you know, if I had been younger, you yeah. know, some of those things would have appealed to me. And, and we didn't have those kind of options. And it was thought that you were going to be the Marcus Welby of yeah. the profession. And yeah. you know, now I wanted to be Marcus Welby. I mean, I wasn't a white man, but I definitely, you know, wanted to be a physician because of those. I don't know why, actually, because there was no one who looked like me. But right. but there was some kind of calling. Yeah. yeah the field well my my calling came at the age of nine and I, i'm dating myself but i was watching a tv show called ben casey me Same too loved ben casey oh I my loved, gosh i did not like dr kildare but i love ben casey yeah and and as i tell that story I, I said he looked at me through my black and white 19 inch philco tv and yeah. said lynette you're gonna be a doctor and I even turned to my mom and I said, mama, I'm going to be a doctor. And she goes, that's nice, child. But about, I'd say a week or two later, I come home from school and there is a doctor kit on my bed. My mom had, uh, out and had a stethoscope and, you know, uh, a manometer yeah. and a reflex hammer. And Dr. Charity was in the house. Yeah. yeah. And that, and from then on, I just geared myself to becoming a doctor through all wow. the segregation, through all the other crap that went on. That's all. I had no plan B. I had no plan B. Yeah. Well, I got sidetracked, but I was just like you. I played the game Operation. And yeah. I used to <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> And, you know, got really good at it. And um, yeah, and I had that doctor kit too. And Ben Casey was, I was thinking neurosurgery, actually, when I... Me too! Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, I became I, a neuro, I mean, I became a neurosurgical anesthesiologist. I loved brains, but yeah. I didn't want to have to do seven years of training. It's yeah. a lot of training to be a neurosurgeon. So. Yeah, I did six years of residency, actually. And I'm really? not a surgeon. Yeah. Yeah. To do child psychiatry, one needs six years. Wow. Yeah. Because you do two years of a fellowship and uh, four, you know, four years of psychiatry. But I had a different route, of course, because I did ophthalmology. That's like really? neurosurgery. Um, yeah. So. So, so yeah. you could do, I, I hated doing eye blocks as an anesthesiologist. You know, we used to do all yeah. these eye operations with a retro bulbar block and yeah. it would just freaked me out, you know, when the eye is kind of bulging out. It's like, <laughs> oh no, what did I do? Very weird. I was going to do oculoplastics and reconstructive surgery because, you know, yeah. Wow. You are just, you've got a lot of hats you got on there. A lot of stuff. A lot, a lot of hats. Off. A lot of hat. Lots of stories. Yeah, lots of stories. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you should share your stories too, Dr. Bates. I I think I will, and maybe I will try my hand at comedy or improv. Oh. So I did this improv a week ago at the American Academy of Child and Adolescent Psychiatry meeting, and I I loved it. 
it was it was great. So I'm definitely gonna venture off and do some more of that. And you have a creative side, so you doing improv is probably not a difficult transition. It's the one, it's the left brainers that are very strong. You know, I, I kind of go like that because <laughs> my left brain is just so heavy. That creative side of me, I'm still working on. And uh -huh. I found when I first started improv to be very difficult because of the fact that I just could yeah. not think on my feet very well. Yeah. yeah. Well, I find it difficult. And I was in this group where we, um, you know, I was with some four other colleagues who were making stuff up on the, on, on the fly. Yeah, yeah. And, and all of a sudden they said, yeah, and we just got out of prison. And, and, <laughs> and I was like, what? <laughs> In my mind, I'm thinking, I can't relate to that. <laughs> what are they talking about? You Prison? don't have to relate. You just have to keep the story going. Yeah. So I said, I'm completely innocent. You know, I'm not. <laughs> I am. I'm. I'm the innocent one. I've always claimed my innocence. <laughs> as long as you kept the storyline going. Yeah. Know? But yeah, uh, those brothers, they were bad. Not me. <laughs> not me. Yeah. I was just going along for the ride. <laughs> so did uh, Doctor. I can't remember, her, is it Brenda Fu? No, it was Dr. Lee Lewis and um, another another okay. improv. Yeah, I was going to say because... Um, They're uh, psychiatrists. Yeah, Dr. Fu yeah. has, um, before COVID, she had a whole program on medical... Oh, really? Yeah. Oh, yeah. nice. I was going to nice. take her course, and then, of course, everything shut down. Because, right. I, like I said, I'm, I'm just so left brain. Yeah, uh, but anyway, when I did when I did that uh, one for the docs in Indiana, I, I you know I had fun with them and they had fun too. So it's 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 I love it. Movie. But improv and comedy, you know, and 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 we call it improvisational comedy, you know. And the other thing I did was I took acting lessons. I took acting lessons. Um, I got to audit because I was a person of a certain age, and I also got a bus pass, a free bus pass. So I didn't even have to drive to the classes. I just took the bus, which was kind of good in Washington uh -huh. State. Nice. And um, I was put into roles that were totally, I was a teenager in one of them, you know, and I, I had to pull from that. And then um, I was a, a, a dying mother in another one, but uh, they told me, they said, you know, you, you are pulling from your experiences, we can tell when you're doing, doing the part and I go, yeah, I just, I just, I needed to just shed that persona yeah. of perfection and I'm a doctor. Right. And these kids were calling me Lynette and I really had to really tone myself down because I really felt like, well, maybe they should be calling me Mrs. Charity at least. Cause some of them were, you know, 18, 19 year olds. And they're calling me <laughs> But I got over it real quick. And nice. again, I did one of my Toastmaster presentations for them and they loved it just because, you know, a lot of people don't know the history that we have endured. Yeah. No one knows about segregation anymore. No one knows about, you know, some of the issues or, you know, and Martin Luther King's legacy, you know, we're, we're not, I keep saying to myself that I think I want to be in 
oral historian at some point in time when I get really, really to the point where I can just go to a library and I can go, you know, so back in the day, let me just tell you a story. And then I would tell the story because kids don't know any of that. And they, they, they wear, they wear this cloak of oppression without ever really having gone through that. Yeah. And I just would really like to say, you can't wear that, but let me tell you what you, what I can share with you about how I experienced it and how you can make yourself better. Because I don't know about you. I, I just, I don't, I don't wear that on my, I tell my story. I tell how I felt at the time I'm writing my memoir right now, mm-hmm. but I'm not going to ever be a victim of that. Right. Right. A victim. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you know, life is hard for a lot of us and we can't stay in the mud. You know, we've got to pick ourselves up and just push on. Um, You know, if I were to wallow in in misery, I wouldn't be where I am today, (laughs) which is, you know, you you can sink into quicksand very quickly if you if you just focus on that. Yeah. Yeah. I, yeah. That, that is, that is golden. I'm an honorary member of, um, uh, I was in the military. I'm an honorary member of the 555th PIA parachute infantry association. And mm-hmm. that is, that was the first black paratroopers group in oh, world gosh. war two. And Ooh. I jumped out of a perfectly good airplane for them Wow. a few years ago. And, um, and I tell their story uh, because these men were uh, World War II segregated army. Mm. Uh, a lot of black soldiers were not allowed to carry weapons, you know, mm-hmm. for fear that they might do something with them. And the jobs that they had in civilian life, that's what they had in army life, cooks, truck drivers. And the thought of them being able to jump out of a plane went past a lot of people but this one guy walter morris saw the morale bad so he would sneak over and watch the white uh paratroopers practicing and then he would teach it to the guys in the bear and their segregated barracks and one day uh the general approached him and he thought for sure that they all were going to get court-martialed or whatever like that but the general said, um, I've been told that you've been doing this and I would like uh, you to head up a group of, of Negro, back then it was Negro um, uh, wow. people, paratroopers, and uh, promoted him to first lieutenant. And 19 of them were the beginning class. And the whole thought was that they're gonna fall on their face. They, they're afraid of heights, they're blah, blah, blah. All of them graduated. All of them graduated. And uh, unfortunately, the, the war was, was winding down. So an opportunity for them to actually jump behind enemy lines or do whatever they had to do didn't come about. But people didn't know that during that period of time, Japan was sending incendiary devices by balloons across the ocean. And they were landing in Washington, Oregon, and California and starting forest fires. And so this group became smoke jumpers. 
And they jumped out of planes to put out fires. They had to carry everything with them. And all of them, they had one death during the whole time that they, and the guy got caught in the tree and and couldn't Uh get himself out. But that being so, that group became um, smoke jumpers and they put out all those fires along the way which is a very amazing That's a beautiful story. story. Oh my God. Yeah. Um, have you thought about writing a children's book? Ooh. No, yeah. I have not. I would love that. I mean, I'm, you know, cause I'm a visual person. I'm thinking of all these images and yeah, yeah no, I would love, I, I, I think that's an incredible, beautiful story. It's an, ama- it's an amazing yeah. story and wow. um, the last one died a few years ago, but every year before COVID, we would meet um, oh, wow. and and get together. We'd have a, a, a person to give the keynote. And yeah. actually I was scheduled to do the keynote and then it didn't happen. Um, and I said, well, I'm very honored to do that. And they said, well, you know, you know our history, you know our story and you can make it funny. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> That's right. Yeah, all that's... these generals come to do it. And so it's like, okay. Yeah. Yeah. That's so beautiful. yeah, we, that you're absolutely right. There a lot of people, I, obviously you don't even know about them, but um, young mm-hmm. kids, that's, that's something that would, because Walter Morris would always say that, um, and these guys were proud black men. Even mm-hmm. when they got into their 80s and 90s, and they would come to these uh, annual meetings, they they would just they were just good people, and they said, you know, we got an education. Some of them reached the rank of colonel. Um, there was just so much uh, to be proud of, right? And and uh, and their story now may never get told unless maybe someone like me tells it. Yeah, I think you have to tell it. And I mean, you could do a YouTube video or a series of YouTube videos, you know, if you don't want to write. Um, and and even, yeah, I, I would say go for it. Or maybe oh, we should talk more and yes. um, figure yes. out how to collaborate on that because okay. I, love, I love that. Um, this has been amazing. Thank you. I, the Thank hour so went much. very quickly. I hope that uh, in our conversation that some people can find some nuggets. Oh my gosh, you, you said so much that I think it will be so valuable to so many people. So I'm honored to be able to share your voice and your story. And I'm honored that you asked me. So thank you oh. so much again. <laughs> thank you too. Thanks everyone for listening. Bye now. Bye-bye. Okay.